Welcome back to Historical Context. Today we continue our Growth and Fracturing of New England series. Today we shift gears away from Plymouth to the growth of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. We last left off at Massachusetts Bay with the arrival of John Winthrop. And at this point, when Winthrop arrives, already 1,000 Puritans had left England uh, due to the two years of crackdown from King Charles I on religious reforms. And many of these people were ending up in the Massachusetts Bay. Before we get back to John Winthrop, I do want to share that since the last episode on Massachusetts Bay, I have come across a short book from one of the colony's earliest settlers, a man by the name of Francis Higginson. Higginson was one of the first settlers to Marblehead, a community 17 miles northeast of Boston. He notes the first thing that was built there was a brick oven to make bricks for the buildings. The area was named Marblehead because of the abundance of stones that were present. Higginson noted that the grass was so fertile they were able to set up a farm with milk cows and were already selling the milk for a penny per quart. They were also able to begin planting corn and noted that people in the Plymouth plantation had tried their corn as well. He also noted the forests were great with several types of trees, which would be good for building ships and houses. He added that the abundance of fish could also help sustain a colony there. Higginson went on to mention that there were several types of birds. The winters are colder than in England, and the summers are hotter than they are in England. He concludes his writing by mentioning the founding of Salem and Charlestown, which is right outside of Boston, and sadly the difficult conditions which caused so many deaths in 1630 would claim Higginson's life as well. But I wanted to share Francis Higginson's story uh, since I didn't have access to it in the prior episode on Massachusetts Bay, but I do now. So now John Winthrop is about to arrive in the colony, and almost immediately after arriving in Salem, tragedy strikes. On July 2nd, 1630, Winthrop notes in his journal that his son, Henry, drowned at Salem. So, uh, dealing with a loss immediately after arriving. Throughout early July, a variety of ships came into Salem with new colonists. Each entered with different circumstances. Some had uh, passengers sick, some reported dead livestock. And again, this is part of the migration away from England by the Puritans. Later in early August, a letter from Plymouth, uh, a Plymouth settler staying at Charlestown reported the challenging conditions. The letter actually appears in William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation. Let's have a look. I have sad news to impart that many here are sick and many dead. The Lord in mercy look upon them. There are many honest Christians desirous to see us. So, uh, you know, the situation, they're not good. 
you've got people piling in and still not getting established. So that's probably playing a role in some of the deaths occurring. And throughout his early months in Salem, Winthrop does note several deaths. On September 30th, he notes that wolves had come and killed six calves and that Thomas Morton, we remember Thomas Morton, had been arrested and sent back to England. Morton's house was burnt down for, quote, his many injuries and misdemeanors to the Indians. Interestingly, the captain of the ship refuses to take Morton back. Keeping livestock seemed to be challenging at the beginning, according to notes Winthrop made in the fall of 1630. In one case, one-third of the cattle shipped over from England died en route. In another case, some livestock was lost after, quote, eating Indian corn. In December, the colony committee, there was a committee, met at Roxbury, which today is part of Boston, to discuss the placement of a fortified town between there and Boston. Eight days after the original agreement, they decided to abandon these plans due to a lack of fresh water. And they did not want to force people who had already built somewhere else to you know, pick up and build again. On December 21st, the committee met at Watertown and felt a mile south of the town would be a good place to build their fortification. For the entire month of January 1631, the only entry Winthrop has is that a house in Dorchester burnt down. It is a very difficult winter there because Winthrop noted that the rivers were already frozen over by late December. Roger Williams, we talked about him last week, arrives at the colony February 5th, 1631, and this was before he went to Plymouth. On February 10th, Winthrop notes no break in the winter weather as he describes great drifts of ice hindering shipping many snows, and sharp frosts, so it was a rough winter. About this time, Winthrop also notes that many people were infected with and died from scurvy, especially in Boston and Charlestown. Winthrop notes at the time that nobody in Plymouth had scurvy, but half of those who visited the colony in 1631 died from it later that year. It's important to note that scurvy is caused by a lack of vitamin C. So I doubt anyone knew this at the time, although Winthrop notes that lemons did wonders to helping treat the disease. On March 23rd, a local chief named Chickatabbit visited the colony and presented Winthrop with some corn. This is the same native associated with the attempted destruction of the Weston colony, and we talked about that many, many weeks ago. On March 26th, the colony was called to sudden action. Let's have a look at the writing. Alarm was given in the plantations. It arose through the shooting of some pieces at Watertown by occasion of a calf which had lost and the soldiers were sent out with their pieces to try the wilderness 
from thence till they might find it. So a small matter becoming a big deal there at, uh, at the Massachusetts Bay Colony. On April 4th, John Winthrop writes about a diplomatic encounter that uh, ended up creating plenty of intrigue. Let's have a look. Wagonacket, a sagamore upon the river Quanacic, which lies west of Narragansett, came to the governor at Boston with John Sagamore and Jack Straw. And he refers to Jack Straw as an Indian who had lived in England and had served Sir Walter Raleigh and was now turned Indian again. Now, nothing happened in this meeting, but Jack Straw innocuously appears as an interesting person. Some historians have hypothesized that Jack Straw is a native named Mateo who lived amongst the natives at Roanoke 45 years prior. Clearly, the mention of Sir Walter Raleigh partially substantiates this possibility, but does that mean he knows what happened to the Lost Colony? While some historians believe so, I don't think so because if he did or was around other English, I think Winthrop would mention it here. Jack Straw is somebody we need to keep an eye on, as clearly Jack Straw Hill and Jack Straw Brook, which exists today in Boston, signal that he played a role on behalf of the colony. On April 12, 1631, a complaint was filed against Salem resident Roger Williams, who refused the idea that the government had any right to punish citizens for religious violations. And so that's where Roger Williams starts to fall out of favor with this group. On April 14th, a new law was put on the books. Let's have a look. An order was made last court that no man should discharge a piece after sunset except by occasion of alarm. So no guns firing at night anymore unless by occasion of alarm. Later that month, a man was accused of having two wives. He went missing when a warrant was issued for his arrest. He hid among the natives for a month and then was captured and sent back to England for trial. On June 25th, Winthrop intercepted two letters, each going to two separate men who had been convicted of crimes and removed from the colony. The letters were from Sir Fernando Gorgeous and implied he was going to try to claim what right he thought he had to the colony. One of the men the letters were written to was Thomas Morton. And you'll have to remember again, we talked about this last week, Gorgeous had a 1622 patent. Uh, and what was likely happening is that he was fighting against the location of the Massachusetts Bay colony, but also Puritan trading posts were in his patented area as well. On July 30th, a clue unearthed that showed the English may not have been the first Europeans there. Let's have a look. Mr. Ludlow, in digging the foundation of his house at Dorchester, found two pieces of French money, 
One was coined in 1596. They were in several pieces and above a foot within the firm ground. French coins from 1596. Now, there are uh, footnotes in Winthrop's writing, and, and in looking at those, the historian who reviewed it suggested that they came from a French ship that actually wrecked there in 1617, and the natives killed some of the passengers. But two people survived this and managed to get taken back to Europe. So there was a French ship that crashed there. I, you know, we didn't know this or come across this when we were looking at some earlier writings. But then you got to wonder, if you'll recall, there was a horrible, horrible disease outbreak shortly after that. And you have to wonder if those two events may have been related. Tensions arose in September 1631, but with whom is a little surprising. Let's have a look at the writing. About this time last year, the company set forth a pinnace to the parts about Cape Cod to trade for corn, and it brought here above 80 bushels. This year again, the Salem pinnace, being bound thither for corn, was, by contrary winds, put into Plymouth, where the governor fell out with them, not only forbidding them to trade, but also telling them they would oppose them by force, even to the spending of their lives. Whereupon they returned and acquainted the governor with it. He wrote to the governor of Plymouth. So clearly uh, relations between John Winthrop and William Bradford didn't necessarily get off to the best start. We know that they embarked on a lengthy relationship via correspondence, but this, uh, we did not know that it began in such a contentious way, and Bradford's writing didn't mention it. So uh, Winthrop, though, here, however, does. On September 27th, a man was caught stealing from the natives. Let's have a look at the writing. At a court, one Josias Plaisto and two of his servants were censured for stealing corn from Chickatabbit and his men. The master to restore twofold and to be degraded from the title of a gentleman and fined five pounds and his men to be whipped. So there's an early look into uh, punishments at Massachusetts Bay. This is a similar expectation with what we saw in Virginia where colonists were not allowed to exploit the natives. On October 22nd, Winthrop received word of the murder of a man named Walt Bagman, also known as Big Walt. Big Walt, an interesting name to carry in the 1630s. This event was also mentioned by Bradford in his writing, and uh, Winthrop is asked to send men for a revenge killing. Let's have a look at the writing. He persuaded the governor to send 20 men presently to take revenge, but the governor, advising with some of the council, thought best to sit a while, partly because he heard that Captain Neal were gone after them, and partly because of the season and wants of boats fit for that expedition. This Bagnall was sometimes servant to one in the bay, and these three years had dealt alone 
in the said isle. He was a wicked fellow and had much wronged the Indians. So Winthrop, I, I don't think he was saying necessarily that Big Walt deserved it, but there was an explanation as to what was occurring here. On November 2nd, Winthrop's wife and a few of their children arrived. Sadly, his 18-month-old daughter would die just a few days later. This was the daughter that was not born yet but when he left England to come to Massachusetts Bay. So another tragedy in the Winthrop family. In late November, Winthrop would help settle a congregational dispute in Watertown regarding an elder named Richard Brown, who was said to have a temper. Winthrop, just like many other leaders we've covered, is not absent of political discontent. And we're going to talk about that next time on Historical Context.